Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now here's our host, the CEO of City Current, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. This is produced by City Current. And uh, if you live in the Mid-South or in Memphis, you know this man very well. Because when you talk about powering the good and making a difference, you see him all over the place doing good every single day. We're joined by Dr. Keith Norman. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church Broad and also the vice president of governmental affairs with Baptist Memorial Healthcare. So, Keith, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing very well. The fun of this is we get to know you personally because, as I mentioned, we see you out doing so much good in various roles because uh, you are a man of many titles and many good deeds. But um, give us a little bit because you're a native Memphian. So yeah. talk about growing up here in Memphis. Give us a little bit of what your uh, childhood was like. Wow. Uh, well, I grew up in some of the most impoverished areas of Memphis, and I spent the formative years uh, through age 17 right here. I grew up in an area of Memphis called Lemoyne Gardens. I had some years there. And then South Memphis on the Riverside areas where I eventually uh, had the most of uh, those 17 years before leaving and going to college. Grew up with my grandparents, also with the influence of my mom, and had the wonderful opportunity to share life with all of my brothers and sisters here in the city of Memphis as well. Um, went to Carver High School. Riverview Middle School, spent about a year at Bellevue. I took a small stint and went out one summer to try and visit uh, Phillips Andover Academy. Uh, and so I got away from Memphis, but I thought it would be better for me to come back home. I wasn't really familiar uh, with the culture in other places. And so it was kind of like a culture shock to me. But I had a very good upbringing. Um, even though I tell people we grew up in poverty, I didn't know it right. um, because I had great parents. My grandparents raised me. They were very solid people. I probably learned, and, and this is, I think people called me an old soul when I was a kid because I acted more like my grandfather because he was an older man and he was my influence. And so I took probably a lot of his calmness and his wisdom. And I think it helped me um, when I had situations that I would encounter in life to just kind of look at it and go, I can get through this. I can make it because I I had a a role model who was a person who just kind of handled life that way. I want, normally I would uh, stick to this topic, but I want to bounce into something you just said, which is um, as a child, you didn't know that you were impoverished. And I think that's something that on, uh, we we talk about on our our end a lot is Mm -hmm. the fact that children don't know any different. And so um, so much of it is just what they're exposed to. And you mentioned just kind of the role modeling of your grandfather and grandmother and, and taking on kind of the the older soul. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big part of just the psychology of the children. They don't know any better. They don't know. We're, we're giving them labels as those trying to be in the philanthropic community to say they're under-resourced or impoverished. Or whatever right. else. But they don't think of themselves that way. You never thought of yourself that way. No, I didn't. When we begin to look at the outcomes of uh, children in poverty, we're shocked and we say we need to do something to change those metrics. But oftentimes they are some of the happiest people you've ever met. Uh, I did not have any deficiencies when it came to love, when it came to people spending time with me, which is a very valuable gift. 
There were no deficiencies uh, deficiencies in my life in discipline in a positive way. Uh, values were formed. So those things you can't put a monetary value on. I mean, because if you look at the love that my parents gave me, mm-hmm. uh, you can't go anywhere any, anywhere else and say, well, because these people have more money, they gave more love. Love is an equal. So it, it was an equalizer in my life. Um, discipline was very important. I had a grandfather and a grandmother uh, who taught me to do what was right. Uh, you can't take me in any other community and show me someone who had more money and they learned more about that than I did because my grandparents knew what was right and they knew what values they wanted me to possess, the values that they had. And it didn't take money to teach those things. And so that's why I think even though I did grow up in poverty, poverty didn't grow up in me. Uh, I had to understand that I could achieve at the same level that everyone else could. I could compete at the same level, and it didn't take money to do that. Uh, One of the most powerful things my grandfather ever taught me was that if respect and values and God are in the front seat of the car and you put wealth in the back seat of the car, the back seat goes wherever the front seat goes. He says, so don't seek after wealth. Seek after the Lord's favor. Uh, Seek after respect for humanity and the values that you share. Let those be reflected in your life towards others. And success and wealth, it'll follow you. Yeah. Uh, so far, that's been uh, pretty true in my life. You know, the Lord has taken me some wonderful places. Well, I love that illustration, too. Shoot, we could just end the podcast right now. <laughs> done. We're, we're good to go. Um, talk about one of your favorite family traditions growing up. Sunday dinners. Um, in my day, and this, this goes back to uh, just really uh, the, the late 60s, early 70s, especially Sunday dinners and watching baseball and sports for free with my grandfather. Uh, Wide world of sports. Nobody remembers that program. I do. Um, But I could see boxing on Saturdays and wrestling on Saturdays free. Now you got to have pay-per-view. But uh, And then Sunday dinners. I always knew, and dinner was a, a staple at my home around the table. But I always knew on Sundays after church, that was a gathering time for family. And it was something special about that. Uh, We would come home after church, and the anticipation was my grandmother, who did not plan Sunday dinners on Sunday morning. She planned Sunday dinners on Friday. I mean, the preparation started. I mean, she would start uh, picking the greens and tearing them apart and letting them soak and clean and preparing the meal and seasoning it. And I tell people that's the love, that's the missing ingredient to a great meal, love. She loved her family so much that whatever she had, she took her time to make it, and it just came out well. And so I knew that our family would gather. I knew we would have a great time. We would listen to the radio. Uh, There were uh, programs on the radio during that time of preachers and ministers and we would listen to the radio, uh, not podcast, but the, the radio versions of live preaching in some cases, because the radio stations would literally go to the churches here in Memphis, set up things, and they would simulcast it at that particular point. And we got a chance to listen to it. And that was just a great experience in my home. We didn't have air conditioning in our home, but it was cool. We had a breeze. We would open the doors and the air would flow through. And it was just a wonderful time. At what point did you realize that you wanted to go into ministry yourself? That was probably a struggle for me. Around age nine, I remember very distinctly, I was sharing with my uh, some of my friends the other day, uh, I encountered a Sunday school lesson um, 
regarding the wisdom of Solomon, how Solomon, when he had a choice to ask the Lord for whatever he wanted, he chose to ask God for wisdom to lead his people. And my prayer at nine years old, I remember very distinctly sitting on a sofa in my grandparents' home. I prayed for wisdom. I prayed, uh, God, show me what to do. Um, because again, I guess wealth was a far-fetched thing for us. We did not connect wealth to our situation. So even though my grandfather was a man who worked hard, you know, we just didn't see wealth as one of those things that was ever really going to happen in a major way. But I said, Lord, give me wisdom. And with wisdom, show me how to treat people and let me use the wisdom that you give me for your honor and your glory and not for my own life. That was a very distinct part of it, because when I read the when I was exposed to the teachings of Solomon and how he prayed to lead God's people, that's what I asked for. And so that was a pivotal and transitional point for me. But through the years, I did not know how that would manifest. So it was a struggle trying to get to that. I went off to college uh, in Atlanta to Morehouse College, mm -hmm. and it was a wonderful experience there. Uh, I wrote a lot during those times. I still have some of the papers that I wrote uh, where my faith was being expressed in those papers. Uh, I failed religion, not once, not twice, but three times because <laughs> I had a professor who thought that I could do better. And uh, Dr. William Guy, he is the he was the father of Jasmine Guy, the young lady who was on a different world, different world a television mm -hmm. show. And so Dr. Guy, who was a pastor in the Atlanta uh, area at First Baptist Church, he told me, he said, I think you can do better work. And he would, I would make a C and he would give it back to me. And I was going, this man is, you know, <laughs> this man doesn't like me, you know, because the C was a passing grade. Right. And so I was like, hey, this man doesn't like me. But what he was saying to me was that he saw something in me. And I think through my upbringing at Tabernacle Baptist Church here in Memphis, Pastor Rogers Pruitt was my pastor. Uh, Mrs. Lucy Matthews was my teacher in school. And these were people who poured into me, Rosanna Smith, uh, Effie Jones, I could name so many people who poured into me. And by 12 years old, they had put me in the men's Sunday school class because I would always challenge my peers. And they were like, oh, this kid here might need to go somewhere else. Throw him out. I got kicked out of Sunday school. Okay. That's uh, my claim to fame. <laughs> so I went to the men's <laughs> Sunday school class and uh, sat there with the men. And I asked them questions uh, because I was, I didn't know it, but I was developing a faith walk at that point in time and developing a theology, thoughts about God at that time. But I really didn't know it. Uh, when I went off to college again, I was beginning to find that way. I went into the corporate world. I had a very successful career in hospitality management. And at the very pinnacle of what I thought was the success of my career, I asked the Lord the question, why did you let me come to this point and be so successful? And what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Uh, I call it my, <clears throat> my burning bush moment. Um, Moses has an encounter with a burning bush, and it is not uncommon for bushes to burn in the desert. But Moses said, I want to see, I will now turn aside and see why this bush burns and is not consumed. It doesn't go away. It never stops burning. And so this question would come up over and over in my life. What am I supposed to be doing with my life? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Um, succeeding in hospitality management. I'm a young 20-ish kind of guy. I'm making more money than I've ever seen. I should be content. And I was discontent. 
I was discontent with uh, the wealth, so to speak. And I found that wealth wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And so I began to say, I need to be doing something that the Lord has called me to do. And I didn't know what that was. At that point, I was living in Indianapolis. And the Lord said, go back to Memphis. That's a crossroad for me because leaving Memphis at 17, I only had one goal in life. Never go back to Memphis. Um, because Yeah, because at that point in time, Memphis did not point to great opportunity for young African-American men. Um, we were being told at that point in time to find a good job. And a good job was at that time, and this is a, this is a good job. I don't mean to disparage this company, but it was to work in the hub at that point as a young African-American male. Go and, that's a good job. Well, I thought that there was more in life, and I thought that I could do more in life. And so coming back to Memphis, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? Because African-American men, uh, they weren't holding political seats at that point in time. There had not been elected an African-American mayor yet. Um, there had been a congressman through a special uh, cutting of a district or reshaping of a district, but not a whole lot of positives in terms of the corporate look for African-American males, which is where I thought I would be. Yeah. But when I came back to Memphis, I went to work at my church, um, at Tabernacle Church where I grew up. I was taught by my pastor, and which was one of the, the most fundamental times of my life because I had more available time to be taught by him before going to seminary. And he taught me how to love people, how to treat people, uh, things that I thought I already knew, but from the ministerial perspective, he taught me this perspective. And it was helpful to me. That's when I accepted the call to share in ministry. And uh, man, the rest has been like skyrocket. Yeah. Uh, I started preaching and pastoring the same year. It was crazy because that rarely happens. Uh, I preached one sermon at my home church. The next week I preached at a visiting church by simply by accident. And the third week I was asked to come to another church and become the interim pastor. And I had only preached three times in my life. Wow. And so it was like, boom, boom, boom. And uh, I think the person that I probably owe the greatest debt of gratitude to outside of obviously those who taught me and shaped me is my spouse, because <laughs> during that time we were developing a family. Uh, we have small children and she's just, you know, going along for the ride and not knowing where this thing is going to end up. But she was always supportive. And uh, it was just like boom, boom, boom. And I started pastoring a church in Batesville, Mississippi, 58 miles away from our house every Sunday. That's what oh, my drive wow. was. Yep. And so, you know. That's it, a lot of sacrifice. Yeah, that's a lot of sacrifice. And, and a lot of Sunday mornings, we get up real early to get there. <laughs> what goes in on your end? Because I think it we haven't had a, a pastor on yet on our end. And I think it's interesting when you look at how much time and effort really does go into the preparation. So in mm -hmm. other words, you see obviously the Sunday sermon, right? but obviously there's so much more to it than that. So unpack and share a little bit of just what goes into your, not every day, but just your, your preparation to be able to prepare and do everything that you do. Life, um, all of life. And this was a very important lesson that I learned. Early on in the ministry, uh, I wanted to compartmentalize myself to say, this is my time to do this with my family. This is my time to study. This is my time to write sermons, et cetera, and do administration. And um, trying to compartmentalize and separate all of those things 
was overwhelming. I tried to go to seminary early on. I tried to raise a family early on. I tried to take vacations, which I'll tell you afterwards, there's no time for vacations. You have to make time for family. And so all of that was just being stacked and stacked and stacked. And I found myself being overwhelmed to the point that it was making me unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And I had an encounter with my health, uh, which, you know, just I, I remember very clearly um, the outcome of that was look at all of life as preparation. So I just began to open my eyes to the things around me. I mean, see the value in people, be present in every moment with people, listen to what they say. Uh, you don't have a lot of time with people. And I, I recognize that we have a lot of conversations with people where we're not present. Uh, we, we see them, but we don't see them. Uh, we hear them, but we don't hear them. And so the Lord just taught me to open my eyes, to hear my kids, to hear my family, to hear things around me, to see them, to be present in the moment. And being present in the moment, I glean nuggets from things and I write them down and I put them in my phone. I make notes about them. And all of these illustrations about life begin to grow out of that. And people begin to say, wow, this guy's preaching is touching me. It's connecting with me because it has life nuggets in it. I could take scripture and relate it to illustrations and life application moments. And then it began to gather and grow. That's how our church grew. Our church grew from 40 or 50 people when I came here to over 5,000 because I think people heard in my preaching a connection to life. They heard the scripture. They saw that the work was being done, but I could take that and make it uh, plain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would say he makes it real plain or make it very applicable. So that's that's how it grew. That's how it flourished. Uh, That's how I knew where I was supposed to be. But then there's that corporate side of me that was still alive. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get to that. So yeah, I'll say, I we'll definitely go. talk yeah. about Baptist in a second. I, I do want to touch on how do you view the church in terms of, because I, I think you're one that really views it, and we'll talk about Brace in a second too, but as a catalyst, yeah. is, is getting outside of the four walls and really making a difference in your community. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge part of just your personal focus. So what is your philosophy on the church in terms of using it not only to teach and better understand God, but really understand the role in the community? So in other words, how do you view the church and the role in the community? God is all about people. Uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world, uh, he comes into Bethlehem. Uh, he, and, and if you really look at it and look at the geography and topography of the Bible, he goes to the ghetto. He chooses, God himself chooses where he wants to be born. And he goes um, to the place. There's this wonderful song by a jazz artist named Gregory Porter that says, take me to the alley. Um, he, he won't go to the most affluent areas. He comes to the place where people are. And so I patterned the efforts of our ministry uh, after uh, that idea of where Christ comes. He comes to the place where the greatest needs are, where people who need their hope lifted and their spirits to be informed and touched and inspired. And so by doing that, um, we decided to stay right here in Binghampton, uh, where the Lord placed us. My idea about ministry, and I'm very clear on this, is that we would be repairers of the breach, as it speaks of in the book of Isaiah. Uh, My idea is that we would never be this ivory tower where you have to go through eight levels to get to the pastor and where you have to go through all of these kinds of systems in order to be connected. Uh, We are an open door church. 
We're here six or seven days a week primarily. We have 24-hour services. If you can't find us personally, you can call us or email us in some way. And we are practical. We're very practical. We're in meeting the needs of people. That's where we uh, frame our greatest work, uh, community-driven. Um, when I looked at the place where we were and people would often ask me early on in ministry, uh, what is your vision? Or that was a big thing. What are you yep, doing? Yep. Well, I looked at uh, the Shelby County Health Department metrics. I, that My vision was shaped by what was going on around us. Uh, Jesus says, go to the uttermost parts of the world. But he says, start where you are. And so we started in 38112. Uh, at that time, we had uh, overwhelming teen pregnancy. We had um, drug issues. This was an impoverished community with a lot of blight. Uh, we saw all manner of, of abuse towards the elderly and women. And so we said, let's frame our work around that. Let's let's take those things and work in that area. And that will be enough to keep us going and keep us busy. And as we would do that, we found that we needed a, a mechanism to reach people, to talk to people, to set ministries around the needs of people. And that's what we do. And as a result, the church just began to grow. And now that spirit permeates this entire facility. Right. The staff thinks about it. Uh, we don't do anything that is not people centered because we know the heart of God is to love his people. Talk about Braced. Yeah. Um, Broad Avenue Community and Economic Development Corporation. We formed that as another way to go outside of the four walls of the church. We recognize that when this community began to um, shrink a little bit more, it began to what we call just kind of dry up. Um, the Sam Cooper corridor opened up. It rerouted traffic off of Broad Avenue. Uh, buildings began to close up. Businesses began to move away. Houses remained uh, blighted and abandoned in this community. So we decided if we're going to be here as a stakeholder, we need a vessel to get into this community and do the things that we need to do. And sometimes the church is not the right vehicle to go into some of those intimate areas. So we formed the Broad Avenue Community and Economic Development Corporation to buy blighted properties, to help incubate businesses, uh, to stabilize this community and the economic development, to ward off things that were not good for the community. Um, we sometimes use the word gentrification, and I'm not necessarily arguing against the refurbishment and gentrifying of a community. I just want it to be done in positive ways so that the community stakeholders aren't driven out and that the price points of everything are not set so high that the stakeholders and people who live here can't access them. So we balance it. Um, Braced is doing a park, a facility in this community that's free. Um, we see things around this city and we see some wonderful things, but people don't always have access to the highest quality, nicest things. I'll give you a good example. Uh, over the last couple of uh, years, or a few months, really, we've seen the 200th anniversary of Shelby County. Mm -hmm. We've seen, I think, the 200th anniversary of the city of Memphis. And so as, as wonderful as that is, we had these great celebrations. But when you talk to people in the inner city, in places like Binghampton, New Chicago, Riverside, South Memphis, they don't know what that celebration is all about. They don't connect to it. They don't go to the celebrations when the celebrations are in Shelby Farms or in the Laughlin Yards area. Uh, people hear about it. And, you know, we still have kids who don't know where the Mississippi River is. 
We still have kids who don't know where Shelby Farms, where is Shelby Farms? I mean, we hear about it. It's this wonderful facility. And so I decided, why can't we bring some of those nice things into the inner city? Why can't people in communities like Binghampton, like Orange Mound, uh, like at South Memphis, why can't we have some of these great big open fields of dilapidated property, old warehouses? Why can't we bulldoze that stuff, clean it up, and put something nice there for the residents so that they don't have to go somewhere else to appreciate where they live? They can appreciate it right here. Absolutely. That's what Braced is doing. We're trying to uh, take this community we work with stakeholders. We work with others who want to come in and put restaurants and shops. But we also say leave space for the things that people can do to enjoy life at no price point at all. If you recreate community and everything has an entry fee or a price point in order to enjoy it, it's really not for the people who live there. Right. It's for people who you're, you're trying barriers. to draw. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're doing barriers. Yep. There needs to be some things that I can walk out of my house and just say, I'm going for a walk. Right. Christ Community Clinic, next door to us, we love them. They're a good friend and partner. When they tell the resident or they tell the patients, you need to walk two miles a day. And that person says, but I don't have anywhere safe to walk. And they'll say, well, go to Shelby Farms or go downtown. and go, go. I, I can't get there. Mm -hmm. The buses don't get me there. I don't have a right. car to get yep. there. But what if you said, leave the clinic and walk across the street? There's a wonderful park right there with a walking track, and it's safe. It's well lit, and you can go. And there's a game there this weekend. And there's organized sports activities. There's a, a health coach going to be there talking about things this Saturday and also on Friday. That's stuff that helps people right where they are. Well, and everything you're talking about, too, is you've got the economic engine. You have the civic pride. But to your point, then, you're solving issues that and when you look at it like transportation, those are barriers that people face. And so when you talk about their health and their wellness, they're not able to take full control of that because of these other factors. Right. Now you're giving them the ability to take full control and to your point, not have to leave their neighborhood, but also to not have to pay an entry fee or right. a barrier to be able to access that. You know, and, and and that just this one other thing, we do it with a sense of sense uh, sensitivity. If we know we have poverty. If we know we have economic and educational barriers, we also know that the language that we use to communicate to people is very important. Mm -hmm. We make sure we're sensitive in our language and we make sure that we are appropriate in our language because there are things that are going on. There are things that are happening in the health community right now that the average person just doesn't understand. So we will sit down and we'll say, how do you take this national and international message and reduce it to the lowest common denominator so mom and the kids can get it right here where we are. Yep. Yeah. Talk about, that's a good segue into Baptist Memorial Healthcare, yeah. uh, Vice President of Government Relations on your end, which in and of itself is a big responsibility. Talk about Baptist overall so that listeners have some context there, especially for those who aren't here in the Mid-South. So give us a little bit of a, a context around Baptist and your role, and then we'll dive into some of the, the kind of responsibilities on your end. So um, Baptist, and, and, and I think this was, again, God's perfect design and will for my life. Um, 
my corporate gene when the Lord switched me into the ministerial manifestation didn't go away. Uh, I'm an administrator by, you know, just by default. I, I wake up organizing stuff and um, probably good that I have a lot of jobs because if I had to stay at home all day, I'd be rearranging the, 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 the uh, pictures on the wall every 15 minutes, you know, tightening doorbells and stuff. This is just going, it just drives me crazy, OCD. And so <laughs> that's me. So Baptist is an outgrowth uh, with perfect alignment to mm-hmm. who I am and what the Lord called me to do. The mission of Baptist healthcare is preaching, teaching, and healing uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ manifested here in the earth. And so I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher, but how did I manifest healing was, the, was always a question in the back of my mind. Uh, we do emotional wellness here in the church, obviously a lot of counseling and a lot of support for people who need emotional wellness. And then we try to bridge the gap with the physical healing. We would work through Christ community. I told you about our relationship with Shelby County Health Care Department. But as a government relations expert or worker, not an expert, uh, for Baptist Memorial Healthcare, I get to go out and help shape policy that impacts people right here in my community. That's what gets me excited every day because that's a manifestation of the Lord's work in government. And I like government. I work with government. I pray for people in government every day. I support government. And I see a perfect interface. I was the former chairman of the Shelby County Democratic Party. Uh, I did not shy away. I don't think that there is this hard, rigid separation between church and state as we like to use it sometimes uh, to, to get ourselves out of speaking up. I think if the church doesn't speak up and especially speak truth to power, then we let people suffer. Uh, I have this wonderful image in my head from an African proverb that says, when the elephants fight, the grass suffers. And so when big entities like corporations and uh, government trample, nothing but the people die. And so if policy doesn't come out right, affordable health care, if we don't get that kind of stuff, if we don't get insurance rates that are lower for people, if we don't get an opportunity to access um, networks of healthcare in our city and go to the places that offer the best place for us to heal and to recover, then people suffer. Mm-hmm. If we don't take things like the present health crisis that's going on and grab it and say, how do you get this information out to people so that they know what to do and how to protect themselves and not trample all over themselves? Another scripture, uh, when, when there is no clear vision, People trample all over themselves where there is no one showing the way people do what they think they need to do and they just end up destroying themselves. And so Baptist gives us this wonderful, gives me this wonderful opportunity to connect my my church and the community at large. Uh, This is a huge platform to say this is what you can do. This is how it should be done. And here's an entity that cares. Uh, What I love about the soul of Baptist is that it is not what we say on the label. It is who we are on the inside. Nice. I have seen it at the uh, some of the most critical days where I wondered how this corporation would act on certain issues. And being a part of the senior leadership, I am so proud to say that they chose the path of empathy and compassion every time and not the, the you know, well, here are the legal outcomes or here's the potential this or that. They said, no, we're going to do what's right. And doing what's right feels good to me in the corporate sense. Uh, it would be hard for me to navigate in the corporate world as a pastor 
if I were with a company that turned its back on the community. Good point. Uh, because I love the community. Right. I love the people. And I feel very confident being a spokesperson um, in Baptist for the community and in the community for Baptist. Well, and we've had Jason Little, CEO, on yeah. um, a Changemakers podcast in the past. And to your point, you can feel that empathy, that care for people. Um, and I think your, your team is absolutely amazing. Give us one thing, because you do a lot that uh, is, is outreach. I mean, working with the homeless, you have mm-hmm. mammogram vans, you have all sorts of things that really go out in the community to take very good care of the citizens. Give us one thing that puts a smile on your face that's something that's innovative or just something that you know you think listeners definitely need to know about Baptist and some of the, the cool things that go on uh, with your team and, and being out in the community. Wow, uh, there's so many. I'm, I'm going to take one and a half. How about that? I love our um, mammography van that goes to various places. We've had it here at our church, and I think over the years, we have found upwards of eight people, eight women who needed to follow up and get care, and it saved their lives. You know, wow. and each year we do a fashion show where the survivors come out and they model clothes. Uh, that's that's the half. That's just one of the things. The homeless van, I love that one. That ministry uh, sees thousands of people in the city of Memphis. We do have a homeless problem here, and that van is dedicated to keeping up with those individuals going to where they are. We recognize everybody can't get to where healthcare is is anchored in all of the places around our city, but we know where they are, so we go to them, and then we provide the services that they need. The one that I'm so proud of, though, is that several years ago, Shelby County government formed an office of recidivism. They were trying to connect with people who come out of jail and keep them from going back. One of the things that I know uh, as a pastor and as a healthcare professional is that when people come out of prison, the likelihood of their exposure to a life-threatening disease, possibly HIV virus and other things, has increased especially among the male population. But if that male does not disclose when he goes home, the reason we see a higher rate of HIV among African-American women is that that male does not disclose. He goes back to their former relationship or forms a new relationship. And now we have a mom and potentially a child that comes out of their relationship born with HIV and all because they didn't know. And so what we decided to do, uh, we were asked for a donation to help open the clinic. And I studied that for a while and prayed over it. And I said, no, a donation gives us an opportunity to help get the doors open. But then once we get the doors open, we have our name on the wall. You know, funding happened by Baptist and we're out. What we decided to do was make it available for medical uh, practitioners to be there when the people check in when they go back to that office of recidivism and they have to check in with their probation officer, that health care is available. And they could get free health care, certain exams and, and, and other things that would be helpful to them that would give them at least the information that they needed to know about themselves. When I come out of prison, I don't have a health insurance card. Uh, I don't have access to health care. But by putting health care where people are and in the, in the spaces what they need, that they need, This helps them to know at least their own situation. Mm -hmm. And from there, they have the power to do something about it. They have the power to either participate or not participate in acts with other people. And then they have the power to get health care at the place of their choice. So I was very proud of that. Uh, It took a huge commitment on behalf of Baptists to do that. And they remain committed to it. We remain committed to it for that purpose because we see the good that it does. 
share on your end when it comes to businesses, individuals who want to get involved in the community. How do you see, when you talk about creating real change, I think many times we get caught trying to find a silver bullet. We think, oh, here's Mm -hmm. an easy answer and it's going to solve all of our problems. And what you realize really fast is that all of these problems are kind of interconnected and you have to go one person at a time, one family at a time, and really help unpack Mm -hmm. the individual struggles that they're going through. And it's a long-term process to get them where they are. It's not a short-term, hey, pat you on the back and you're off to the races. So uh, when it comes to kind of sharing advice mm-hmm. for creating change, what advice would you give? Um, an impactful journey that I took several years ago um, was reading a book <clears throat> that I encountered on an airplane, actually, next to someone entitled The One Thing. And from the book, um, I found that one thing is powerful. It's said over and over in the Bible. Um, Paul says this one thing that I do. And David even says one thing I've asked of the Lord. Um, And I started shaping my life around fewer things rather than more things. Um, I was doing a whole lot and I was doing it, I thought, very effectively. But one of the things that I read in the book is that the author says multitasking is an opportunity to to be mediocre at more than one thing. You can't really do everything at the level that you really could if you did fewer things. And I'm not saying literally do one thing, but I have committed myself to doing a few things extremely well. And so when you want to be a real change maker, you have to first understand that starting where you are is important. You, you, you know, you can say, I don't have this and I don't have that, or I wish I had this or I need that. But start where you are. Pick a point and start there. Uh, if you're going to clean up the room, start with picking up one thing. And from that one thing, remain committed until, until you see some real progress. And it's going to take time. Oftentimes what happens to us is that when we begin a task, we don't see immediate results and we kind of go, ah, maybe this isn't it or I shouldn't do that. Uh, When I came to this church, we were one building with a lot of issues going on, a small membership pending foreclosure. Uh, So my commitment was to just do this for one solid year. Actually, I said, don't change anything. Don't touch it. Just love the people, empower the people, and show them what the collective love of our working together can produce. Before you know it, we're building, we're growing, we're moving, but we've been doing that one thing, and one thing can get you to a point where you can do more things. Now, we get other people to find their one thing, Mm. you know, find your one thing. And so everybody doesn't have to do the same thing. Your ministry is not mine. Mine is not yours. Uh, What you do, and I commend you for this, is a very powerful use of media. I tell people, I think when we get to heaven, there are going to be some radio and television announcers who are going to get some special conversations because they didn't use their platform very well to communicate, and they used it to tear down. They used it to destroy and deconstruct. And so I'm like, I don't think they realize it, but, you know, it's going to be a short line over there saying, Lord wants to see you, you know. (laughs) But I think, you know, but this is your thing. 
And you do this one thing so well, and it gives platform to the other things that we do. Uh, So I'm not going to go and start a podcast next week. I'm going to let you do that. (laughs) But I'm going to continue to do this work that I do, connecting um, the faith community to government, connecting the faith community to healthcare, connecting the faith community to policy development, showing us how we can get involved. That's my thing. Well, it actually dovetails perfectly with uh, some advice that I've been using lately from a recent guest speaker, Mick Ebling from Not Impossible. Mm-hmm. He says, help one, help many. So yeah, to your point, that's it. focusing on one allows you then to create a ripple effect. Yeah. Um, let's switch over into, it's it's kind of a lightning round, but it's just short questions, sure. fairly short answers. So uh, first one is, what do you like to do to relax? Uh, uh, next question. No, golf. Uh, I, I have a group of friends and we have what's called night service. All right. And these are guys that I hang out with, uh, that we get together on Sunday night after church and we watch sports. We kind of, you know, hang out with each other. I think they are my, um, re- relax, resolve kind of, you know, let it all hang out group. It's, it's, it's no holes barred. We love each other. Uh, we all love family. We all support each other. There are a lot of pastors in the group, but we just kind of, that that's our thing. Nice. Yeah. All right. So this is going to be a two-part question. Sure. First, what do you and your wife like to do as either a date night or something special? What What's a special thing for you and your wife? My wife has a chair that she's worn the elbows out on because what she likes to do is get in that chair and just sit there. Um, but uh, I think her thing is travel. Our thing has been travel. We've been blessed to see some of the greatest parts of the world. And growing up, again, my wife and I grew up in the same impoverished community. And one of the things they should tell her when we dated as young people uh, in high school, I said, stick with me. I'm going to take you places. And now when we go somewhere, we were in Greece one year. We were in Israel one year. And every time we get there, I said, I told you I was going to take you places. And so travel has been one of our greatest joys. I think our children, we're at a stage of life where we are raised, we've raised four children together. Uh, we have our first grandchild. And we are probably best or at our best when we see them accomplishing things um, because we feel like they are the arrows that we've launched into the world. And one of the things that I say about our children that I think my wife agrees with is I'm proud to say we've raised four children that if they were not our children, I'd be happy to be their friends. Nice. Because they're good people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been our, our great joy. Well, the second part of that question yeah. was going to be, where do you like to go with your kids? So your family. Um, anywhere. Um, probably. We, we are homebodies, believe it or not. Now, we have a, a great travel um, experience. We've done some lo- a lot of local things. I think the most fun place that we did was New York. Um, because my kids and, and, and Las Vegas, I will say, well, in New Orleans, um, my kids are night hawks. They'll wake up in the middle of the night. We woke up one night in New York and I forget the name of the famous bakery that is on television. And you go there. It was two o'clock in the morning. We were standing there in the bakery. <laughs> man, just, hey, let's do it. You know, Dad, we want to go here. So, OK, let's go. And then one night in Vegas, the roller, the the uh, roller coaster. And there's a Ferris. Yeah. Dad, we want to go ride that. And I'm like, OK, let's go. You uh, know, so you so like some go. adrenaline then. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and I don't want here again, I think, as committed people, busy people, we do a lot for others. But for me, I wanted to make sure that when I had that time with my kids, that they knew I was all theirs and there was nothing off limits. Now, I do recall specifically saying on the Batman ride, I forget where it is, it's in St. Louis or somewhere, 
that that was the last time I was going to ride a roller coaster. I uh, got on. <laughs> they said, come on, Dan. On I one. said, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I said, look, I, I'm not made for this anymore. Uh, I believe if God wanted my organs to be hanging upside down in my body, he would have made them that way. Because when that thing flipped me over a couple of times, I was like, wait a minute. you know." So I'm not putting them down. I'm not putting them down. But that was my last time riding a roller coaster. Yeah. When you have friends come to visit you here in Memphis from out of state or just out of the area, where do you like to take them? Uh, I like to take them to the local places where you don't see the names uh, p- plastered everywhere. There, there's some nice spots in Memphis. Um, I like Mahogany Restaurant. It's a new uh, restaurant. I like the Crock-Pot. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. I like A&R Barbecue. There are so many places that have that Memphis feel that are like, we've been here and we do it. Um, that's, what's, what's the one over on Winchester? God, I forgot the name of it. The Soul Food there. You, you, I mean, they don't, they don't have any billboards, but they have a line. Uh, trust me. I mean, um, Privé is good. Uh, I like that that group. You go in there, you get a feel. Privé is a funny place. Let me tell you about it. It, it, uh, you go there. It's at Winchester and Riverdale. Uh, it's the Gotti family uh, uh, who who owns the spot. And when I go in there, uh, there's nothing but love. People just sitting there eating and enjoying themselves, enjoying a great meal. Uh, all of these are wonderful spaces. And I like to take because sometimes your friends will come to town and they will have heard about this place or that place. And I don't put those places down. Those are good spots. But I say, okay, if you think that's good, let me take you somewhere. Cozy Corner Barbecue. Take it to Cozy Corner. You and then look, don't eat the hot. Don't don't you can't handle it because you know, your friends be sitting there going, Whoa, what'd you give me? Uh all of these places that are Memphis staples. I was at Four Way yesterday, Four Way over uh um, grill over on Mississippi, the Four Way. I've been there. I, when I that was the first restaurant I went to as a kid when I wanted to go out somewhere for my birthday. Uh, I don't know how old I was, but it, it goes back to the days when the original owners were there. And I said, I want to go to Four Way Grill. And it was a birthday place, you know, especially in the African-American community. That was like, that was like, you know, Houston's is today. It was like, if you went to the Four Way Grill, man, you were on top. So what's a favorite quote or something that uh, it can be from your parents? It can obviously be from the Bible. But what's a favorite quote that you like to carry with you? Um, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It was a very pivotal uh, scripture for me. Um, Psalm 119, verse 11. It's very powerful for me because I tried, and and there's a preceding question in that uh, verse where David, the psalmist, is asking the question at a young age. He's coming into power. He's coming into the calling of his life. And he says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How do you get it right in a world that has so many opportunities to get it wrong? It felt like David was sitting there going, man, I got all these doors open in front of me and I need to know what to do. And I felt that way, you know, uh, as a young man growing up, I was at Morehouse College. I was in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, so imagine 18 in Atlanta. All right. I'll let you figure out the rest. I wanted to not squander the opportunity that the Lord had presented. I said, how do you cleanse your way? How do you get this right? And the answer when David asked the question was, hide the word of God in your heart. And I realized that the difference between the mind and the heart, the mind quotes the scripture, the heart lives it. Out of the heart flows the issues of life. Out of the head, you can flow with knowledge, rhythm, and rhyme all day. 
And I see a lot of smart people who know the word, but I don't know a lot of people who have it in their heart that live it. And my goal is not to be smart about the Bible and about God's word, but it's to try to manifest it from my heart and something that's natural. I want it to be natural. I don't want it to be something I have to think about. Um, I often quote and tell people that if character is something that you develop as a result of calling, then it's not really character. Character is who you are when, when calling comes. Um, my grandparents taught me stuff like, don't lie, be honest, treat people right, all of that stuff. And so if I become a minister and decide, oh, I need to start doing this, then it's really just to put on for the audience. Mm-hmm. But if I'm that person, then I'm that person. Now, sometimes I get accused of being just too blatantly, you know, direct. You know, you ask me a question, I go, yep, you shouldn't have said that. No, that's the truth. And when we get to all the explanations and all the other stuff, the truth is still the truth. And so um, I'm going to probably live and die being that person. <laughs> but um, hiding the word of God in my heart is probably the, fa- the, the one of my, it is my favorite scripture, my favorite quote. Yeah. This is one of those conversations we could go on for so, so long. It's, uh, I mean, so many just amazing nuggets that I think people really enjoy and take out. And I hope they're inspired by that. What, obviously on your end, you still have a long way to go with your legacy, but um, many, many, many years from now, what do you hope that people say about you and your efforts and making a difference here in the Mid-South, but really just, you know, you take the effect of not just in the Mid-South, but around our globe, Mm. but what do you hope your legacy is? Um, that, that I treated people right, um, that I did not harm. Uh, I, I take the, um, the Hippocratic oath of doctors very seriously, even though I'm not a medical doctor, do no harm. Uh, and that means when you have the opportunity to do right, do it. And, um, that's, that's deep for me because do no harm in the sense of social ministerial administrative type work can mean, I'm not setting out to do you any harm, but it also means when I have the opportunity to do good, to do it, to take that opportunity. Uh, I think we have so many opportunities in this life to do well by people that either we don't hear because our spirits are not in tune to it, um, or we don't see because we're so busy pursuing our own goals. One of the uh, practices that I learned in uh, seminary and other uh, uh, practices of life is just uh, focus and solitude and being present. And so if I'm talking to someone and they say something to me that makes my ear kind of go, here's something that I hear and I have the power to do something about it, then I'm going to do it. I, I don't have to go through a whole lot of red tape. I don't have to ask a lot of questions. I don't have to get permission from anybody. If I have the power to get it done, get it done. And that's important to me. Not that I have done these things or been in these positions or, uh, you know, owned anything great in life, but that I've done right by people as I have encountered them, especially with power and authority. I realize that the influence of my words and the decisions that I make have an impact on people's lives. And so I want to use that influence in a way that the Lord is pleased and it brings the greatest outcomes for people. And even for the few or some who will say, that decision didn't work for me, 
if they understand that I did what I thought was right for the greatest number of people uh, at that point in time, then that's well. I shared with uh, my some of the members of our congregation last night that while we are going through certain protocols in church because of the current uh, crisis that is taking place in the land, um, it won't make everybody happy. You know, change doesn't make everybody happy. I mean, there are going to be airports that are closed. There are going to be some people say, well, I would fly anyway. But um, I am a Trekkie to some degree, <laughs> a small scale. Um, the the one, one of the things that, that I remember most from one of the Star Trek movies, uh, the good, the needs of the many far outweigh the needs of the few. And so when I have to make certain decisions, it gets down to some some tough, tough things. But when you think about saying I got 100 people here and this decision is going to impact 100 people, 85 people are going to do well with this decision. Five are going to not do so well and 10 it won't impact marginally. Well, I'm not trying to hurt the five. I'm not trying to uh, not be concerned about the 10. I'm just trying to make the best decision for the greatest number of people. And in leadership, whether it is in the church, whether it's in the corporate arena, whether it is in politics or any other area, those are some of the critical choices you have to make. To not make a decision can be more harmful than making a decision that people won't be pleased with. And so ultimately, when people get to say what they want to say, which they say it already, um, but when they say it and I'm no longer you know, able to hear it or be around, I want them to just say that I did what was right or I tried to do what was right. I love it. Yeah. So where would you direct? Because obviously there's a lot of places they can go to find you, to learn more. But when it comes to things you know, like Baptist Memorial Healthcare, um, obviously the church, Braced, and getting to know more about what you're doing there, mm-hmm. any sort of website, social media, where, where would you direct people? You can always go to www.fbcbroad.org. Um, you can also go to the Baptist website. Um, and, and you can find profiles there, but you know, people can always reach me through the church and that's the best place to do it. They can, you know, Martrice, my administrative assistant always connects me, uh, to wherever I need to be. And, and once they get connected to me, I'm, I'm real practical. And again, that whole idea about not having to go through many layers, um, every new members class at first Baptist church gets my personal cell phone. Let me get, they get my number. Uh, if I'm committed to being their shepherd, I want them to be able to call me. And so they'll call me by cell phone. The only thing I ask is that they don't give it to 10 other people. <laughs> and just use it for yourself. That, but, um, that, you know, that's it. Call me. I'm available. I come when I'm available to be there. And if I can't, I'll do it in the car on the way to the next location. Well, you make it easy. And I think uh, Baptist Online is the handle for right. Baptist. But to your point, it's very easy to find you, to find Baptist, to find Brace, to find uh, First Baptist Church Broad as well. So, Dr. Keith Norman, thank you for all you do for uh, being a change maker, not only here in our community, but obviously with all those around the world that you inspire. So, thank you for being a change maker, for coming on the podcast. We thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Changemakers podcast produced by City Current and brought to you by Lipscomb and Pitts Insurance. To learn more about our guests and share your stories of others leading by example, visit us online at citycurrent.com or follow us on social media using at City Current. Please make sure to subscribe, rate and review our podcast wherever you listen. Now think big, start small and act now. Be a change maker.